All right, let's start Ergo. Hey, Daniel, hold on. Wait, before you start the show. Yes, Rosie? I just want you to know that the 2020 census is here, and you can fill it out online at www.mycensus2020.gov or by calling 844-330-2020. Good to know. Okay, let's get into this episode of Ergo. Hello. Hey. This is Ergo. It is indeed. I'm Damon. Oh, I'm not Damon. I just got it backwards for the first time in 250 episodes. I was just a little thrown off. I'm Kiss. I'm David. That was a delight. <laughs> Worth every it. second. Yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can just walk around uh, false flag it, just a person. Whatever it serves you or the world. If you love yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but what we do here uh, is showcase the folks reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more equitable and creative in the midst of this pandemic uh we have launched a series called on the line where we are on the line with the people who are themselves on the line fighting the harmful effects of this pandemic its social effects and helping our communities heal uh, as best they can Uh, we have a very very special guest on the line with us today Uh, pura from the little village solidarity network is here yeah 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 (laughs) <laughs> the sound effects feel a little weirder to do remotely yeah like it's weird always mm-hmm. but it feels really weird doing it in my closet <laughs> nays with so, the delay don't don't really come <laughs> off as smooth <laughs> it's true so so Porter, let's start with the uh two-part question that we start all of our conversations with in this time this moment this season how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world so again, hey, I'm Pura, and I organize with, I always like to give a shout out to La Red de Solidaridad de la Vita, um, especially since um, we are fighting gentrification throughout the Chicagoland and um, the hood that we have originated from is identified by the majority of the residents there, the people that live there by La Vita. And so I think that's super important that um, we need to emphasize um how this pandemic is treating me um i think a lot kinder than many people and i can safely assume that because um i have the majority of my family with me and my community is outstanding and i totally appreciate the people in mutual aid organizations because um that's one way we've been able to survive, um, we participate as much as we can, but it's, you know, the people around you and the energy that um, keeps you pushing forward and literally helps our days go smoother. Well, I'm I'm excited to have you on, Puda. For folks who don't know, you told us before that this is your first, like, independent solo interview. So I'm glad to be doing that with you, but also just want to... Um, <laughs> It's ours too. <laughs> but I also just want to want to offer you um, some love and appreciation over my time in movement here in Chicago. You have been uh, a hyper present face and uh, um, a loving spirit that that is 
consistently present um, and showing up for the work, showing up for the community, showing up to gather. Um, and my memory, I don't know if this is the first time we met, uh, but my memory always goes to our very first breathing room series that Let Us Breathe Collective did back when we were uh, having events on the West Side in North Lawndale. You had, you had your babies with you. That's part of the, the ways that like you're identified, like you come with your tribe. Um, and we had a free store and like, unfortunately, it was so heartbreaking. Unfortunately, like the the, the tricycle that like your, your kids had to come up some stairs. So it was kind of like placed somewhere and it could have, or maybe somebody was just being sinister, but it could have looked like it was a part of the free store, or at least that's how we wanted to interpret it. Um, uh, and it was really unfortunate that your children, you know, lost their toys, lost their goods. They came to this first event that's centered around love. I think it was like Martin Luther King day or something. <laughs> um, and, and I remember how understanding you were, because uh, I was prepared for you to be really upset because I didn't know you at the time. Um, and then also it taught me a lot about community because that was the first time I saw like an immediate in a room response. Uh, folks just like collected what we had. I mean, tried to make a contribution to have some type of restitution in the framework of like us trying to learn what restoration looked like. And so I just wanted to like start with that story because every time I see you, it kind of like warms my heart. And I remember that moment that was was unfortunate, but like our response and I think some of the like recognition we had of each other in that space was just really important. So I just want to start with that story uh, before we get into all the nitty gritty of us. Thank going you. On yeah, no, that that is the exact example of what's going on now. Like we are living in these trying times. And though, you know, we read about our ancestors living through times similar, if not worse, and our relatives um, in other lands living like this, or, you know, other parts of town. But yet what happened was that community came together and made it better. And that's literally what I think the majority of us are fighting for. Of course, we want the ideal peace and unity and equality, but we will totally do what the meantime is struggling together. That's a prime example. Mm. So let, let's talk about the one example of that communal struggle that I know you, your work has been really central around and is, you know, kind of the, the framework that we wanted to center the conversation around, which is the work uh, that you and your comrades have been doing uh, in resistance to the uh, detention facilities, which are called shelters that are run by Heartland Alliance for children all over Chicago and, and as part of a network all over the country. Um, can you just one, set the scene a little bit of how you understand where the story is at right now um, and, and what are the pieces that folks who haven't been so in tune might not know? Okay. So I, I will have to step back a second and start with um, a little bit of very current contemporary understanding. So these are baby jails that we are fighting against and the system has been around for about 20 years. According to the Flores Agreement, which was in the late 90s, um, the whole idea was that children cannot be detained past a certain amount. So which steps in these quote-unquote shelters, which are detention centers, which are baby prisons. And so what happens is that they spread throughout the whole United States, Turtle Island, and up until February. So coronavirus has changed not just the demographics, but um, the very quickly moving status of these buildings because um, we were late on the scene, obviously, of identifying the dangers of coronavirus. But um, in February, we we're supposed to be up between 160 and 180 different baby jails throughout the United States. So to our knowledge, um, we had 11 of them 
about three years ago. Wow. Yes. And that's amazingly horrific because these are places set in our neighborhoods, accessible to practically everyone because they've been spread out throughout the Chicago land. And they look like homes. Many neighbors have identified them as foster homes or as nursing homes, which, you know, a lot of us understand also that is a part of the system. These are jails also, nursing homes, foster homes. And so um, the neighbors are correct in identifying these essential locations for um, the containment of people. And, you know, what's more horrifying is that, um, yes, Trump did accelerate this, but you know, the system has been in place for a long time. And yes, many people's beloved Obama and Biden, which we have to look forward to, set up much of the system. And so what we need to understand is that um, we were fighting. It started with um, a little section of Chicago where people sat down to organize outside Coral Boulevard. And we started to organize against the police and Polimigra against them. And so detention has always been a part of our um, central organization where, you know, abolitionists, we were able to visit and start to find out um, more details because there are whistleblowers. The whole idea about these baby jails is that children are being held there for ransom, literal ransom. Hmm. And every day that the children are sequestered here, they're um, being human trafficked. Every day it's a it's a cash gain for Heartland Alliance, and the Archdiocese has a part in this also. They have their own baby jails. Throughout community pressure, we've been able to shut four of them down, but now throughout the COVID, many more have shut down. It seems that there may be just three currently available that have, our last count was about 67 kids, mm. but the majority of them, it's fluctuated between 37 and 42 have um, COVID-19. Wow. So let's, I want to take one step just to go back before pandemic and kind of map the, as best we can, uh, the pathway for how these young people end up detained in these buildings. As far as you can trace, where are these young people uh, entering into this carceral structure? How is that happening and how are they ending up in Chicago? Okay, so the majority of children are deemed as um, to be alone because they are not with an immediate family member that has identifying paperwork. So it could be that they come um, with a sibling, with a partner, they come with a relative, they come in destination, which means in route to connect with their family. Mm. And so what happens is they become detained. So um, from our best knowledge, children from Mexico, since there is an, uh, an agreement with the equally horrifying president of Mexico, the children become deported. And it's not just people from Central America, it's South African children. There's children from, there's Bengali children, there's Romani children. And um, so that's one fact that I totally love to share with people because you know, a lot of times our organizing methods are with whom we could identify. Right. And so what people need to understand, it's not just brown kids or it's kids of many different shades of brown. And there's even white kids in there. So once ICE has custody of the children, um, the children are taken hostage. Many times they're separated from their siblings. 
um, if the child is with their parent, meaning under 18 parent, because of course there are young mothers and fathers, they are separated into a system of where there are beds for them throughout the whole United States. Our borders that these children and families are being separated at is our southern border. And so they end up in Chicago or other places like Chicago. The majority of kids are there for a couple months, but there has been um, a child in there for about 322 days. And so, um, yeah, this is cash. This is big cash for Heartland Alliance and for the Archdiocese. And so these are, just to clarify one last thing, that money that they're making off of these, these are through government contracts? Is that where the money's coming from? It's from ORR. And so the Office of Refugee Resettlement. So um, if the child, like every normal child, is um, sad because they're missing their family, they're missing their land, they're traumatized, they do not want to participate in the programs, um, they are either, one, disciplined, they are medicated, or they are threatened to go to a higher, um, a maximum security facility. And so in the Chicagoland, that would be Rogers Park. Uh, There are two in Rogers Park. The other baby jail in Rogers Park is the tender age. So that's where moms and their babies are. So just to make sure that I'm tracing this correctly, these are young people who are separated from either young parents or siblings uh, at the border. And they could be coming from anywhere, from all kinds of places in the global south and all over the world. And then basically through this network of government contracts are relocated, regardless of whether they have people in these cities, uh, to these detention facilities run by nonprofits all over the country, correct? Correct. Again, I believe that you said, you know, with a parent, but also sometimes kids come on their own or sometimes they're young adults. And as long as they're under 18, they're put into the system. Um, And another example is uh, Jose, who we've been blessed enough to build a relationship with. He was held in Rogers Park. He lived in the United States for about 10 years before he was arrested, and he was placed in this this program. He himself was a father at this moment, and luckily enough, he was able to be bonded out, but he's one of our best witnesses to the traumas that's going on. He is so far the only voice of the internal Um, youth voices they're called participants but they really are hostages they are detainees yeah i mean the magnitude of the the horror is really heartbreaking there's a tragic like irony in this crisis we're experiencing uh, and the fact that it is making vulnerabilities uh much more visible it feels like at least from my perspective um and not only visible but like connected right so we're starting to see um connections between systems of schooling and incarceration and food and employment in ways that I think when we were functioning through our terrible norms, we allowed separation uh, that I think benefited our oppression. Um, And so I have a bunch of systemic curiosities, but I don't want to ask that right now. (laughs) I I, want to know a little bit more about the organizing um, because if I start going on like all the questions about <laughs> what the fuck is going on in there, uh, we might miss some of the, the, the power, I should say, um, of, of right now. So I, I'm curious, 
these are isolated young people in a hyper vulnerable situation uh, that are being moved and transported throughout the the nation. How are y'all getting access to start building these relationships to start learning these stories? Where is that connection and communication happening? What is the network that allows you to know? uh, uh, You said Jose's story? Is that Jose. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so how did you get to know Jose and, and some of the other people that have had to go through this terrible experience? One day, um, we received a message from a young man, and he reached out to us and he said, "Hey, you know, I I want to share my story. It's honorable and it's amazing, and he's given us so much light because for a while we were told throughout the Chicago." And this is from other community organizations also that we were scaring the kids. We were doing, you know, a horrible job. Like we should, we, again, we are direct action. So we, we still continued forward. You know, we have our own mindset and we have um, our own experiences. And so when Jose came to us and we communicated with him, I think he's one of the strongest people that I have met. And though I organize with many amazing people, just the fact that this young man has gone through so much and he still is willing to put his voice and his story on the line and it's not for profit, which makes me even believe more. You know, the people that are on the ground, the people that are working are what help us to survive. And so Jose, he shared his story. He shared many details. Um, and we've been able to have access to some whistleblowers who have given us um, inside. Of course, all the stories line up. And, you know, having an individual experience um, does touch a lot on the horrors of the reality. You know, it's different from hearing it from a worker than from um, a youth that survived the system. So I applaud Jose, and by any means, I'm willing to help him further. He has um, a GoFundMe. He also is fighting deportation, and he is a father, and I think we should all support him. Yeah, and of course, we'll we'll share the info. But just for folks who are listening right now, where can they go to find info? I know there's a wonderful video that I saw on y'all's Facebook page uh, of an interview that you did with him. Um, but, but where should people go, let's say, if they want to find out more specifically about him and figure out how to support him? He does have a PayPal that folks can send money to. We're hoping one day he'll come to Chicago. Um, though, again, the COVID has set backward dates. We would love to support everyone because the idea is not just release the kids and reunite them, but it's also to help continue their efforts in surviving and um, achieving all their goals. Yeah. And that's really um, significant. I think, you know, when I'm hearing or gathering um, and kind of already was coming to this conversation, knowing this is, you know, Y'all are are showing such a real time example of the significance and the power and the potential of direct action. The fact that that relationship was open or made possible from the work of this mode of, if we want to call it confrontation, or at least uh, a direct naming, I think is more important way to, to phrase it. Our, our conversation right now, the last few weeks of how y'all been throwing down, uh, I think has really 
um, put a spotlight on something that I was unaware of in a technical sense, <laughs> right? Like I know that there is a general problem of ISIS, this terrorist organization, and that there is this, you know, genocidal practice happening uh, at large and that most of like the fight is around our border. Um, and I know our communities are affected. But um, you didn't know there was a building on 35th Street. <laughs> right, right, at, at all. Uh, and I wasn't looking for buildings either. Um, right. And so I, I want to talk a little bit about the direct action strategy uh, and then how does direct action planning and organizing change in a social distance required pandemic? Because, uh, you know, I've been a part of that process. And so often uh, it's a week or 10 days in a room or in a basement or in a warehouse somewhere practicing and rehearsing and doing trust falls and all types of, <laughs> all types of shit. And so, like, you know, in this world of social distance, how are y'all planning these very important actions that, that, that are, are yielding? this greater consciousness that is really and that important. are happening outside right right so direct action is our baby <laughs> um you know we've organized throughout the chicago for a while and what a lot of times happens is meetings and meetings and more meetings and meetings about meetings <laughs> and so though that is fun i do i dig that too you know and i appreciate the laughter and you know and i'm always like let's bring food you know um <laughs> Yeah, someone said uh, a meeting without food should be a phone call. Yes, yes, that's what it is. <laughs> Just in person. So, you know, we need to practice what we preach. And I think the majority of us are hands-on. So that's how we come to the idea of, you know, let's get in the streets. Let's use our bodies to every benefit possible. And whether that's building art and, and showing up with banners and you know whether that's music or using our voices um to sing and though i'm not a good singer so i'm not specifically speaking about me when i say that um a collect a collective yeah, voice yeah. a collective song the me we <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and there are so many amazing people that um you know originally we've been together with some but meeting other people along the way that have joined us and have given you energy. And so a lot of times, you know, let's go down to this baby jail today and let's be outside with some, you know, with a speaker with music, with, um, you know, balloons, with noisemakers, you know, everything that we can imagine. One, to communicate. Two, to show presence. And, um, you know, Jose, he said that when he was feeling a bit low, not necessarily conquered, but voices on the outside of the building that he was being held he was being detained were saying you know we love you you're not alone and he realized that you know the people in chicago are not all like the heartland employees gestapo you know that gave a much more positive spin i mean we have an actual witness saying that we are helping the children and Heartland Alliance has been saying that we are scaring the children. So, you know, we also have to read through that the trash that they are spewing because it's, you know, it's all for their profit. And, you know, we have to just keep these voices in our head and letting the kids know that, you know, we are there for them. We are demanding their release and their reunification and their safety. Yeah. It's a very, like, um tangible fundamental kind of love right like there's the macro political critique and fight and then there's that what you just talked about is that yes there's a wall separating you from 
the young people who are inside, but that you know they can hear you, and now you know that they do, and that they appreciate you, and that they want that love and need that love. That's a beautiful gift to give. Uh, is just that little bit of recognition and connection and acknowledgement and love. Um, I was at uh, the action that y'all did a couple weeks ago. That was like with the car caravan on 35th and Giles. Um, Which one? <laughs> Uh, I'm trying to think. It was maybe three weeks ago at this point. So it was in the midst of the pandemic. Uh, I can't remember exactly what the date was, um, but there were probably 40, 50 people there on the outside. Um, And so to Damon's question, you know, it was one of the only times that I've left my house in about two months. Um, So we know how this crisis has impacted uh, and escalated the danger for these young people inside. How has it changed your tactics and your approach to this fight? Well, I think from the beginning, we've always tried to work communally. So we just had to add on the whole idea of being more careful. So what we've added more is um, trying to remind people about six feet, uh, making sure everybody has masks, hand sanitizers. Um, and so we did take a step back or a pause, let's say, um, when this first started, because, you know, we have to gain a sense of grounding, but also we had to check reality. You know, unfortunately, many of us or many of our immediate ancestors have gone through many similar experiences. And so, you know, we had to be like, we have to snap out of this and we need to get back out there and we just need to be more careful. You know, we're doing this for the kids. And we're doing this to say, you know, not in our name, not in our backyards. We also like to remind the cops, you know, when they try to get in our face for the case, six feet back, you know. (laughs) 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 So, you know, it it comes in handy in many moments. (laughs) Yeah. When you can deploy it, that's pretty smooth. Yeah. (laughs) That's beautiful. So, yeah, I'm really just moved by the work so often when when we make that choice to to not be uh passive or stagnant and we decide to be active we are limited to trying to persuade the people who benefit from our oppression or don't care or are the active like proponents of it right uh and that's really like demoralizing to be yelling at the cops or trying to change the mind of a, a policymaker or some other you know bureaucrat within an agency. Um, but what, what I'm also taking away from the work that y'all did is not only engaging community to, to, to observe and to, to open our eyes, but also, you know, your audience is also the people most impacted, right? Like the, the, the noise demo, the showing up, we have Jose as an example of, you know, this is something that benefited me. And that's just such a beautiful, rare, uh, success story. Um, so often I talk a lot about how like our audience and targets, we confuse them as the same thing. Uh, but, but our audience is our people, our audience is the people who, who are, who are being hurt and our targets are the ones that we are trying to expose and we're not performing for them or to them. Uh, so I I do want to get in a little bit of that system talk and talk a little bit about the target. Uh, we're using this language of like baby jails. Um, Heartland is this, you know, entity that many people probably never heard of or know about. Um, 
or it, know about it in a positive light. Mm-hmm. Right. It's kind of a large scale social as nonprofit. A, in yeah, city. as like a service center. Um, and, you know, I think it's really important for our analysis to expand that the state is more than just a government agency, right? Like the state has its, its hands and its relationships in corporations and nonprofits are a type of corporate formation. Um, we're using this language of baby jails and I want to break that down a little bit. Um, so, so like, for example, over on 35th and Giles, how different is the living conditions, experiences, or how similar are they um, f- to what young people are experiencing at the JCDC? You know, what is what is formally and publicly known as a juvenile detention center? Um, are these armed Gestapo or Heartland employees? Are there, you know, what what do we know so far about the actual conditions of the space? And how does that inform our understanding of this organization and the institutions it's connected to? So I think um, that's kind of a multi-tiered question. So, and also for- I'm prone um, for a multi-tiered question. Damon, Damon, Damon can't help <laughs> I, I'll slow down. I'll slow down. <laughs> so the thing I was asking first, right? Like when we hear the language of baby jails, I just want to like clarify for people's imagination what that means, what that looks like, right? What is the distance between a juvenile detention center and a foster shelter or something that can be disguised as like a housing service? Yeah, so- um First and foremost, um, they are equal in terms of um, separation and trauma and fear building. My knowledge is not so much of um, juvie, et cetera. And it differs from every building because there are ones that are smaller and they have not necessarily a home-like structure. But since they're smaller, they have less bodies that are being contained in them. And so the one on 35th is the biggest facility. And it had enough space. It has enough space for 250 beds. So that would be equivalent of 250 kids. The children in these places do not have um, visits. They cannot receive visits from their family. And their family do not know where they are. And from our knowledge, um, Jose also told us that the children do not know what neighborhood, what street they're on. And so this is where we can honestly see the idea of a hostage. Because the child, they are the ones that do the cleaning in these places. So instead of um, setting up a budget, Heartland gets to profit more money and the children are the ones that are doing the cleaning. The children do have a forced education of how wonderful the United States is, even though they are being isolated and they are being held captive. And the children are medicated without their consent, without their family's consent or knowledge. If they react in a way that is normal for every child, the children have um, at most two 20-minute phone calls. And that's about their contact with their family, if that is possible. Also, um, if they do have siblings or if they themselves need uh, comfort as in a hug that is not allowed also, they cannot communicate when they're sitting down and eating. They cannot communicate outside of other tables. So it just goes to show the strict uh, lifestyle that they're being forced in. And it's a very much um, equivalent to residential schools that has happened in our past also, in our recent past up into the 90s. You know, it's a lot about 
the residential schools when it's taking the Indian out of the child and whitening them. And so in these instances, it's about deculturing the child and assimilating them in a brainwashed sort of way. And, um, you know, we need to imagine the horrors um, the child has, has received, separation from their families and not knowing where they're going and a loss of communication because, um, you know, children, their neurons are still growing and they need their family with them. And, you know, in order to come to these lands also, we need to understand what the children are fleeing the majority of the times, it's our United States policies that they're fleeing. So that trauma is being enacted on both sides. And and what you were saying about the um the workers maintaining the facility, which of course is in conversation and is consistent with the ways the jails and prisons run in a lot of cases, where like the people who are being incarcerated there are the ones that make the institution run. Um, so just Damon, to your point, like between the through threads there, that jumped out to me. Certainly. So I came to know about Heartland. Alliance probably like within the last 18 months or so in that way that like me and Daniel kind of talked about uh, doing housing work in in community trying to find where are the resources and like who are the people that know and anybody that like I would get contact to the only place that was like consistently referenced was Heartland but then people were kind of like politically eh, I don't know right like they seem like they have stuff but I'm not really I can't vouch for them as an entity um and they were never really responsive when i was trying to reach out so i I never actually got in contact but the name would always come up or anytime somebody was in need it was like oh i have an appointment with heartland next monday or i can go up there and if you're there at like five in the morning you can maybe see a case manager or or something so that was my knowledge of this entity before let's say six weeks ago from whatever you know how does Heartland or spaces like it? I also heard you mention the archdiocese um, become this receiver or this partner with ICE and you know our nation state and the federal government to be doing this torturous detention work that is so far from how community sees or understands or recognizes these spaces. Like, how the hell does that come about? I don't know how to like ask it more like eloquently than that. Um, but, but there's like a big piece missing, uh, from like the A of what I know to them of like the Z of this reality, um, that I just would love help on filling in any of those gaps. Yeah. So it's really interesting. You know, Chicago is a huge city, but many ties and the roots are very deep. So Evelyn Diaz, unfortunately, she's a brown woman. And uh, her ties um, begin back when she was a part of the cover-up, the Laquan McDonald cover-up. And so we need to understand she had blood on her hand long before this. And so she is the president, which makes um, over 400 grand, or at least, who knows, um, this next budget, but um, a base of 400,000. And now she has been hired by Lightfoot. We we don't really know yeah. how far she's aspiring. I uh, a couple a couple weeks before the, sorry to interrupt a couple weeks before the quarantine started, I was at a Vietnamese restaurant on Argyle and with a couple of friends, and I was listening. Yeah, I'm a big eavesdropper. I, I love a I love a table to table eavesdrop. And I was listening to these two like probably forty something white women sitting behind me who both worked at Heartland and they were like on the development team and talking about like the scale of their gala. And at this, it was right around when I first learned about this work that y'all were doing. And 
I've never just like yelled at a person in a restaurant, but I was very like just personally infuriating of like listening to these two women like talk about like the $400,000 gala they were planning at the same time that they're profiting off of these kids. Like it just, I just like buried my face in my foot and called it a day, you know? Um, but that's kind of the scale on that like large scale nonprofit that we're talking about. Yes. We don't have so much information on David Sinski. Um, he's also one of the chiefs of Heartland. And so we've demonstrated outside of his building. He is big in the queer community. And so many of our friends are friends with David. Also Boca Negra, which is a part of the decarceration program that Heartland Alliance runs. He is from La Villita. So do you think they see this as like for those particular people, right, who you might have connections with, who have done meaningful organizing work or community building work? Is this like you think a harm reduction approach for them? Right. Like because there are the people who are holding these kids and then there's all the other things that this organization does uh, not to, you know, not to let them off the hook. That's not what I'm here to do. But I am wondering, like, whether it's through conversations or just imagining, like, how do you think they justify being being complicit in this structure? Yeah. Exactly. They continually try to push the idea of these places being shelters. But like you said, they're complicit. If you have a baby jail, much less seven or, you know, even one in your backyard, in your neighborhood, that is ground zero. We need to understand that every time we are silent, that we are making this possible. NIJC, which is um, has separated from Heartland. Um, they've changed their motto in words so far, but they were the people that were uplifting legally Heartland and giving the children um, know your rights information classes, which at every age, the child, whether they understood or not, as long as they signed a little X on a paper, they would say, hey, you know, we did our job. Um, so what we've been always demanding is that these people use their power politically, their legal power, your money power to speak out, to work against, to demand. And so what, what is happening is that if we do not do this, um, Heartland Alliance and the Archdiocese will continue to spew that they are doing uh, a benefit. Over 90% of the children have documentation um, to go back to reunify with their families, it's just a means to fill coffers. And Heartland Alliance, very unfortunately, like many NGOs, anything in order to continue to fill um, their profit margins, anything that, um, you know, there's no conscience in, in capitalism, in gaining money on the lives of immigrant children and separation of families. You know, we need to understand when other forms have happened in the past and the traumas and the outcomes. Um, you know, we will survive as a people, but how are these children and their families? Um, they are not receiving continued health services, mental health services once they are reunited. And again, the majority are over 90%. It's just a waiting game. It's in order to extract more money and information because the information the children give or the families give gets turned over to ICE. So it's about tracking and it's about um, mm. building a bigger database because 
they give their DNA, um, x-rays of their teeth to find out um, the child's age. And so mm. one other big factor that I left out is on the child's 18th birthday at one or two in the morning, they, be, they become deported. So they get sent into an adult ICE facility. Mm. So Heartland has been saying, we care about these children. But last July, there's, there was at least six kids that were sent into ICE deportation. So they use forensic dentistry also to say, okay, this child is lying, which um, it's been stated that forensic dentistry is anywhere between three to six year difference. So why would you bring that sort of diagnostic testing that will change a child's life for the worse when they're already in a hellhole? So what I'm hearing, and I want to just be mindful of time, is the use of these languages of helping, protection, caring, shelter uh, to justify and kind of obscure the way that they're contributing to this uh, larger violent system that has a lot more kind of social pressure in opposition to it, right? So they can frame themselves as being in opposition to yes, it. Yes, and we need to understand that all that these right? big time NGOs throughout the Chicago land, they're friends. You know, and all these big bosses, CEOs, they know each other. So, you know, we need to look at where we're working and who they're working with. And, you know, the ties, the ties are deep. So my last question is a two-part question. One, how can uh, the two of us and our listeners uh, contribute to the work that you and your comrades are doing um, and just continue to find out more? Uh, and then the second part is uh, in this hectic and unstable time what's something that you're doing if not every day every couple days to help yourself be more okay as we move through this pandemic what can community members do more is um, participate at every capacity that you have come out stay six feet um bring your your mask bring your banner even if you're just by yourself and you're driving by the kids can hear you when you drive by and you scream you know, we love you, liberation, reunification. You know, we, we are capable of so much. And this is just one of many struggles. The children have, you know, the children that are being set free, hopefully, you know, expedited as, as is told. It's not about justice. You know, it's because everyone's getting sick. And um, we need to keep the fight alive, love and rage. What I do to continue is, as always, trying to enjoy every day, every moment, laughing, loving my community. Yeah. Where can folks uh, go to find out more information about your, your group and the ways you want to be found? Um, we do have a website, Little Village Solidarity Network, um, La Retrigarina de la Villita. We do have Twitter and Facebook and all that stuff. Um, there, please reach out um, and drop some cash for Jose. And, um, you know, we're, we're not in this by ourselves. We also organize deeply with um, GDC and IWOC and Rogers Park Solidarity Network and Rosa Negra and many more, other, many more orgs that come out. You know, all of our struggles are connected and um, yeah, we can't stop because then they win. Beautiful. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts, your voice, your work, uh, and being on the line with us. Uh, we're at Ergo Radio. I'm at Damon underscore AF. I'm at Ergo Kiss, uh, and we'll be back on the line showcasing and celebrating the words and perspectives of another person on the front lines of this moment. 
thank you so much for, for being with us. Much love to the people. Peace. Rosie. Daniel. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Look who's here in the studio. It's me. How's it feel to be in here? Well, I was a little nervous uh-huh. earlier, but mm-hmm. now I'm a little more calm. Wonderful. And I'm staring directly <laughs> into your eyes. But we do that all the time anyway. Yeah, but there's not always all this equipment in between us. Well, maybe this will help. Let's play a game. Okay. So I'm thinking maybe like a taboo. Taboo. Like I'll give you some clues and then you'll have to guess what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Does I that know, make sense? I know how to play taboo, Daniel. Oh, you'd prefer if I did not taboo-splain? Yes, please. All right, let's get started. Timer on the clock. Ooh. All right, first up. Okay. It's an independent podcast app. Got it. It embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. Mm-hmm. It has no exclusives. Mm-hmm. No premium content. All right. No paywalls. Great. And it's a great podcast app for everyone. Mm-hmm. Do you think you know it? I think I do. Huh. What do you think it is? Sounds like the Overcast app. Beep, 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 beep. Toots got it. Yay. Look at that. I win. Nicely done. How does one get the app? Well, if one were to want to get the app, one could get it for free in the app store. Fantastic. Cool. You going to check it out? I might. Very wonderfully non-committal. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Let's get out of here. Bye.